Red flags flying in the air, people singing in the streets, the unveiling of a history museum, social media nonstop. On July 1st, the Chinese Communist Party kicked off its 100-year anniversary by celebrating China's economic success and ambitions to create a new world order. The festivities, of course, are carefully choreographed. For decades, the Communist Party has crushed any counter-narratives to promote a whitewashed version of China's history. Those who deviate from the party's official narrative suffer retribution. And in recent days, records of that punishment have been expunged as well. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's July 2nd, 2021. A date is set for the recall election of California Governor Gavin Newsom, September 14th. More U.S. Supreme Court decisions. One limits voting rights, another allows big political donors to keep their anonymity. And the Los Angeles Police Department accidentally detonates thousands of illegal fireworks at once. Now, more than ever, boom. Today, the second episode of our two-part series on the ascendancy of the Chinese Communist Party and the young people who try to fight against it. In the 100 years of the Chinese Communist Party's existence, China has seen decades of civil war, famine, and in recent years, a surge as a global power. But critics say that the country's economic success has come at the expense of human rights and freedom of speech. Now, a newly revised volume of Communist Party history aims to airbrush its past for a younger generation who has come of age in a tightly controlled social environment. My colleague Alice Su is the Times Beijing bureau chief and covers the ebbs and flow of China. Welcome to the Times, Alice. Hi. So, Alice, in the past year, the Chinese Communist Party has been gearing up for its centennial celebrations, which kicked off yesterday. What have the streets in Beijing looked like? There's been this huge buildup over the last few months. The 100th anniversary is a really big deal. There have been a lot of big official events. Like yesterday, we had this huge fireworks display and thousands of people in, in the Bird's Nest Stadium, which they built for the Beijing Olympics. You know, on the street corners, we have photo exhibits, we have screens that are playing patriotic videos with inspirational music. Last Friday, I was, you know, walking around Beijing trying to observe what was happening. I went to San Lituan, which is the trendiest shopping area in Beijing, and it's known as the place to see and be seen. Usually there's a lot of street photographers taking pictures of young people, and there's these big high-rises in the background. But now, in the middle of San Lituan, there is this exhibit. It's a celebration of you know 100 years of rejuvenation. And what I saw there was there were people lining up around the block to go into this little exhibit where they could take pictures of themselves kind of posing like they're on a high-speed train or they're you know in a little village, and it shows kind of the change that's happened. And then later that night, I came back to the same area and there was basically a patriotic pop concert. So you had this huge crowd of people waving their cell phone lights in one hand and waving party flags in the other hand. 
There was this one song in particular that has become very popular in the last few years. It's called Woho Wode Zuguo. Me and my motherland, and basically the lyrics say something like,、oh, Me and my motherland, we cannot be separated even for a moment. Like, no matter where I go, I'm singing praise to the motherland, and the motherland is like a, the sea, and I am a wave. The waves are the sea's children, and, and the sea supports the waves. So, kind of these very patriotic, or you might say nationalistic themes. Everybody was singing along, taking videos. Aside from the things that you see on the streets, organizations nationwide have been told to study and to celebrate party history. So, what that means is that every kind of organization, from schools to lawyers' associations, have been having red songs, singing competitions, patriotic poetry recitations, study groups where they watch documentaries about. The Communist Party. All cinemas nationwide have been ordered to screen two patriotic films every week. So basically, there's been a really big buildup to this week and to this day, July 1st. Earlier this year, the Chinese Communist Party also released a new official edition of its history for the public. What does it say? So, the history that's been released, one fifth of the new book is devoted to. Post 2012 China, this kind of new era under Xi Jinping. And that's similar to what I was talking about earlier. You know, it's very celebratory and triumphant, and it's about a strong and proud China that has influence in the world. And then major traumatic parts of China's past are glossed over in a very quick way. There is the Great Famine that happened during the Great Leap Forward. There's no mention of people starving to death. And of course, there's Tiananmen Square, which looms really large in, in foreign understandings of Chinese history, but here it's, it's not taught. The most tragic event happened in the Chinese capital, Beijing. Thousands of people, most of them innocent civilians, were killed by fully armed soldiers when they forced their way into the city. I was hearing gunshots all over. Uh, Tiananmen Square, and I saw、uh, people bleeding, being carried away, and I saw tanks, troops running in, and we were overwhelmed. Ambulances went to on the street, Internal Peace Avenue, and in the hospital. I was in all these places and seeing the deaths, the, the bloodshed,、uh, and the people dying next to me. It is mentioned in the book, but it's mentioned as you know, there were these counter revolutionaries creating trouble and it was quickly dealt with. So there's no mentioning that protesters were killed. This history that skims over the dark parts and skims over the parts where mass suffering happened, 
that's what's being taught in schools as well. And that's kind of been the theme of、um, this patriotic education that was instituted after 1989 when the June 4th incident occurred. So, for a lot of young Chinese people, particularly those who are born from the 1990s onward, Their experience of China is, is very different from the experience of older generations, people who lived through, say, the 60s, 70s, and, and, and 1989. So, you know, their lives are getting better and better. China's getting richer and richer, stronger and stronger. And at the same time, the education they get and the information system that they're in, it is all about just, you know, why we should be thankful and proud that we have come so far. And, and also at the same time, why the rest of the world is, is really struggling, falling apart. That's heavily affected the current generation of young people and created this nationalism that is heavily on, on display right now. But at the same time, you know, that's not all young people in China. There are exceptions, and there are actually, unexpectedly, there are many individuals who, despite all of these restrictions, despite the censorship and the control and the surveillance, they are doing what they can to. Try to remember the actual history that happened and to document ongoing history as it happens today. We'll be back right after this break. So, Alice, you recently reported on young people in China who are trying to push back against the official state narrative on the history of China. What are these people doing? So, in my reporting, I came across multiple cases of young people who were both trying to commemorate history that was erased and that were trying to document history as it was being erased in real time, you know, kind of racing against the clock. Archiving stories online before the censors erase them. And one of those examples was a pair of young programmers named Chen Mei and Tsai Wei. What they were doing is they were keeping censored articles about the COVID 19 outbreak on an archive on GitHub. They were detained in April last year and they have been in detention for more than a year. So I couldn't speak to them directly, but I interviewed Chen Mei's older brother, Chen Kun, who is currently in France studying for his PhD. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you don't need the video, just the audio, yes? Okay, no problem. I'm not tired, I think that's you. <laughs> so, Chen Kun is a few years older than Chen Mei. He was born in the 80s, and he came of age at a time when people in China could still access Google, Twitter, YouTube, all these platforms that are completely blocked today. I was、um, one of the pioneers to use Twitter in China in 2007. I mean, 14 years ago. <laughs> so, Chen Kun says that internet access and you know, reading information that was not allowed in China really changed his understanding of the country that he's living in, of what it means to be Chinese. And, and not only did it change his understanding, but it enabled him to find other people who were thinking the same way as him. So, from his exposure to the internet, Chen Kun first learned about the censored history of China, and then he found inspiration to kind of you know, do something about the society that he's in today. I was a college student、um, 
when I used Twitter. Um, both Twitter, Wikipedia, and uh, some other social media. My social teachers for me. <laughs> I I knew a lot of the real history, the the social events, the social movements in China. Um, totally different from what happened in in China. I mean, in my daily life. <laughs> So eventually, Chen Kun became involved with this organization called Li Ren, which kind of means like to establish a person. And what they did was they were making these rural li- libraries in, in rural areas, and they also ran the summer camp for young people. And what they wanted to do was to encourage Chinese young people to think about who they were as citizens and what they could do for China. That's where Chen Mei met his friend Tai Wei. That's where both of them kind of became inspired to, you know, do something for for civil society. That's where their values are formed, and that's where they got the idea eventually to make this GitHub archive. So things really started to change in China after 2012 when Xi Jinping came into power. Civil society, in particular, became a target of crackdown. It was seen as something that comes from the West and as part of the set of dangerous values that could potentially destabilize China. So a lot of NGOs were being targeted and shut down, and their leaders were being arrested. Chen Kun, who was the head of Li Ren in 2014, spent a few months in detention. They guarded me every day. I mean, 24 hours, even when I went to the toilet. Uh, and of course, the the cameras uh, were around my <laughs> my room. Some of my colleagues and um, they were tortured very strong, and uh, they were sent to hospital for several days. You know, despite the crackdown on civil society, both the brothers remained idealistic and remained. They kept trying to do what they could within the boundaries. You know, not going out and protesting and asking for political change in that sense, but kind of doing what they could. So, Chen Kun is a little more outspoken, more of an activist. But Chen Mei, his younger brother, is he says he's he's more of an introvert. He's more of a nerd. He says, I think he's a shy guy, a nerd. He likes the computer science, so most of the time, I think he works alone. <laughs> so Chen Mei, you know, he wasn't somebody who would go out on the streets and demand change. You know, he's not a confrontational guy, but he was very good at tech. And actually, a few years prior to the pandemic, Chen Mei and Tai Wei they started this archive on GitHub. It was called Terminus Twenty Forty Nine, and their idea was just basically we should document what's happening in China outside of the official narrative. So what Chen Mei and Tai Wei were doing was they were keeping copies of all the deleted articles, and they were also running a discussion forum where people could talk about what was happening. So they were documenting labor protests. They were documenting the Me Too movement in China. And in January 2020, when the pandemic hit and when Wuhan went into lockdown, Chen Mei and Tai Wei shifted to COVID-19. 新增确诊病例三十四例，全都为境外输入病例。China health officials say the source of the new type of coronavirus has not yet been found, and they don't fully understand how the virus is transmitted. Wuhan, 连续三日，湖北除武汉连续十六日，湖北以外省份连续九日无新增本土确诊病例。
this new virus is, is really a threat to human beings. So nobody knows what the disease will spread in other areas of the world. They started saving all these articles that were being written about the initial lockdown, the the sense of fear and confusion that was in Wuhan. And a lot of the things that they saved actually were not opinion articles and they weren't essays by dissidents. A lot of the things that they saved were articles written by Chinese state media journalists who, who you know, risked their lives to go into the pandemic well, before it was called a pandemic, to go to this, you know, unknown outbreak of this deadly virus that was killing people. And so Chen Mei and Tsai Wei, they, they were keeping an archive of that history. They wanted the rest of the world and they wanted later generations to be able to see it. What does it mean? What is cracked? <laughs> the government defies the cracked. So this is what I think why my brother did is important because he doesn't have the right to define what is correct. He just archived them. We can imagine that for the future generation, if they want to study about the COVID-19, the lessons we learned, they need more and more data, real data and stories to study but not the only official narrative. So Chen Mei and Tsai Wei were documenting these articles, but then the government ends up detaining them, right? Yeah, so they were detained in April 2020, and... They were held for more than a year before they went to trial. During that time, their family was not allowed to see them or contact them. And Chen Mei's brother tried to hire a lawyer for him, but they were told that, no, Chen Mei and Tsai Wei are using the government-appointed lawyers. And those lawyers tend to push the defendants towards confessing, admitting to the crime and going along with what the authorities want. Is it just the government policing and monitoring what people say? Actually, it's not. So something that everyone I interviewed wanted to talk about was there is a change happening in Chinese society that is very worrying for them. And it's not just that there's constant police surveillance and monitoring of your devices and your speech and and your action. But now with this rising wave of nationalism and with many, many years of information control, there is an increasing trend, too, of people monitoring each other. Earlier this year, you know, China's Cyberspace Administration, they put out a request for reports of historical nihilism, which is kind of party speak for any discussion of history that is critical of the authorities. And they said, you know, if you see anyone, you know, your neighbor, your mom, your friend, a random stranger online engaging in historical nihilism, you know, call this number, go on this website, report what they're doing. And from the official statistics, we can see that mutual reports on political speech have gone up. So this is something that activists like Chen Kun are worried about. First of all, they are nationalists. They love the country, even the party. They are proud of the traditional culture of China. But I think the most important is that they were mm, brainwashed by the government. I know some of them, they don't know the real history. They just don't know the official narrative. Mm. 
it's harder to communicate with them because we, I mean, we don't share the same knowledge, same information about the history, about the society, about the social problems. Even we live in the same society, same country. <laughs> in China, it's it's kind of like there are two groups of people living in the same country, but they're experiencing two different countries. You know, you have the majority group, especially the young who. Who never experienced the turmoil of famine or the Cultural Revolution, and they just experience a rising China, and everything is getting better and better. And every day they're told by officials and by their schools that anybody who is questioning the benevolent leadership of the party, they're potentially funded by foreign forces, and they're out to destabilize the country, and they're anti-China, and so on. And then there's another group, kind of a, a much smaller group of people who are kind of you know focused on the dark parts of China's history, and also about the ongoing crackdowns that are happening all the time, and they're experiencing a China that is getting you know darker and darker, and you know moving towards. Stronger forms of authoritarianism, but sometimes it's like these two types of people are living side by side in the same country and not at all experiencing the same thing. And the problem is that now, with the strict controls on information, those two groups are less and less able to communicate. I mean, this is what really saddens people like Chen Kun, who had been working for years to try to just awaken their fellow citizens, not to an uprising, but just to to be empowered and to be engaged. And now that's becoming impossible. You can buy Tesla, you can buy every everything, but you cannot you cannot buy even a newspaper. <laughs> the Chinese people they don't know how to discuss the public affair. They don't know how to organize, for example, the local community to defend our own rights. This is what what makes me sad. Even sadder than my brother's arrest. So China has reached a stage where anyone who has documented history that doesn't fit with the official Chinese government narrative has been arrested or fled abroad. Well, sometimes it does seem that way, and when I speak with people like Chen Kun or online archivist in my story, they speak about how hopeless they feel because it does seem like those are the only two options: you need to go abroad or you're going to end up in jail. But You know, when I'm on the ground reporting, I'm often surprised by the fact that you never really know completely what is there below the surface in China. And sometimes, you know, in the most unexpected places, you'll find someone who actually holds thoughts that go against the government narrative, and they just never had anyone to talk to about it. So even you know, going back to this scene that we described earlier last Friday, when I was in that shopping area in Sanlitun, I was listening to the patriotic songs and watching the patriotic video, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go interview a patriotic volunteer and you know get some quotes about how proud they are of the 100 years of history. 
I saw this you know, group of kind of elderly men. They were all wearing red hats and red armbands, which marks them as neighborhood volunteers for the event. And I went to talk to one of them. There was this one old man kind of wearing his red hat and red armband, standing in front of the video screen that was playing videos of rocket blast off and, you know, great China in the future. His name was Yang Tiyun, and he was 72 years old. And when I asked him, you know, what do you think about this 100-year celebration? He surprised me because he actually paused. (laughs) (laughs) And he knew that I was foreign media, and he said, you know, 100 years, it is something remarkable, but I can't help but think there are some things that we still need to reflect more on. There are mistakes that we've made and we haven't thought enough about them. Like many people of his generation, he knows a lot of Mao Zedong quotes and it was quite interesting. He actually quoted this line from Mao to me, which was, which means humility makes one progress and advance and arrogance makes one fall behind. Just so you understand, like that's a very dangerous thing to say in China. And it's, it's especially dangerous to be saying that at the site of patriotic celebration with police around and with everyone coming on the most sensitive week of the year when everyone is meant to be united and proud. I chatted more with Yang and he told me, you know, he was sent to Heilongjiang province when he was young during the Cultural Revolution when a lot of youth were sent to remote rural areas to work. And he was telling me how it's not just that the common people suffered a lot during those years, but it's also that he saw how top leadership within the party, you know, was engaged in these kind of brutal political struggles. He saw leaders being purged and they kind of broke his ideals and his illusions about this glorious, pure party that's leading us. I think he and many people of his generation, when they saw the kinds of factional struggles and mutual purges that were happening, they realized this is really about power. But he also said, you know, I'm thinking like this. I'm not sure if it's correct, but I just can't help thinking we need to reflect more. What struck me about this story is how what the Chinese Communist Party is doing with its nation's history, it's exactly what we do here. We've been whitewashing our own history since the days of the Mayflower. Yet the U.S. is always quick to judge Communist China and others while we do the same and stay silent. I think what has struck me during my reporting is that, you know, amid all this competition between the U.S. and China, We kind of see a lot of very similar rhetoric coming out of both sides. Essentially, the U.S. and China are competing right now to prove, you know, who has the better system and who can be a stronger country based on their type of governance. And for China, at least, it's very much about showing, obviously, it's us. You know, obviously, it's the Communist Party. We are so strong. We are so united. We are able to get rid of COVID. We're able to now send rockets into space. And a lot of the focus is on 
achievement and accomplishment. But while reporting, I think what struck me was just that the people that I meet who actually lived through that past are not so fixated on a type of strength that's defined by skyscrapers and GDP and military might. What matters is not necessarily this outward hubristic version of of strength, but what matters is having the strength to look honestly at your own history and to look honestly at your own past, to be able to admit and acknowledge the things that have happened and to learn from them. Thank you so much, Alice. Thanks, Gustavo. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Next week, we take a look into how the planned closure of a state prison in California might ruin a small town. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Shawnee Hilton. Our intern is Ashley Brown, and our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Special thanks to Jeffrey Fleischman. I'm Gustavo Arellano. We'll be back next week with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs> <laughs>